A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the sixth day of May, 2023, King Charles III and Queen Camilla will be crowned. The invitation for those lucky enough to be present at Westminster Abbey features flowers in groupings of three, signifying that the king is the third monarch of his name. Among the coronation regalia that will be used are the sovereign's orb and scepters and St. Edward's crown made for Charles II following the destruction of the crown jewels by Parliament in 1649. It seems to me then that this is an appropriate moment to talk about the coronations of the first two Kings Charles, two occasions both markedly different and yet vastly similar. On the 2nd of February 1626, at a ceremony at Westminster Abbey in London, Charles I, second son of James I of England, James VI of Scotland, was crowned King of England, Scotland and Ireland. A second Scottish coronation was held seven years later on the 18th of June 1633 at Holyrood. Charles's reign is inevitably best remembered for the subsequent events of the English Civil War, a conflict over the balance of power between Parliament and royal supremacy, which ultimately resulted in Charles's execution and the temporary establishment of the Commonwealth of England. This would not last. His son, Charles II, was crowned King of Scotland at Scone Palace on the 1st of January 1651, before the restoration of the monarchy in England in 1660 saw him crowned King of England, Scotland and Ireland at Westminster Abbey, London on the 23rd of April 1661. Charles's coronation involved a reinstatement of tradition after the turbulence of the English Civil War and was a momentous feat of display and celebration meant to reassure the public of the nation's prosperity and stability. Here to discuss the coronations of Charles I and Charles II is Dr Claire Jackson. She is senior tutor at Trinity Hall, Cambridge, and she writes and presents extensively on early modern England and Scotland. Her books include Restoration Scotland, 1660-1690, Royalist Politics, Religion and Ideas, as well as a seminal biography of Charles II. She's presented documentaries on the Stuarts for the BBC and her most recent book, Devil Land, England Under Siege, 1588-1688, won the 2022 Wolfson History Prize. She came on not just the Tudors to talk about it, and I'm delighted to welcome her back. Dr. Jackson, welcome back to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak to me once again. Thank you very much for having me. I wonder if we can think about Stuart coronations 
and whether they would have differed greatly from those of their immediate predecessors, the Tudors. Was there a choice made to differentiate them in some way or was the key thing to reflect the past? Stuart coronations are really interesting if you think about the first three Stuart monarchs, James I, originally James VI of Scotland, then Charles I, then Charles II. For different reasons, and perhaps unexpectedly, they each had coronations in Scotland and in England. So when one's thinking about did Stuart coronations imitate or echo Tudor coronations, they may have done so, but if so, for quite specific reasons. So James VI and I had two coronations because when he was crowned in Scotland, he didn't know he was going to become King of England. But when he did become King of England, after many years of waiting in 1603, in a atmosphere in which discussion of the succession had been banned, and under Elizabeth, although his succession in 1603 turned out to be surprisingly peaceful and uncontested, framing his coronation in ways that echoed very directly with earlier predecessors was a really powerful way of then legitimating him. One of the main arguments against his succession to Elizabeth had been that he was a foreigner, he was a Scot, Scotland and England had a long history of being at war with one another and mutual enmity. Descendants from his line have been specifically barred by Henry VIII's will. His main claim was heredity. He was also Protestant. He was a male. He had heirs. There were lots of good reasons why he should succeed to Elizabeth I's crown. But that right was never recognised publicly. And James spent much of the 1590s trying to negotiate and pave the way both for a good relationship with Elizabeth and some of her ministers, but also trying to square any opposition from continental competitors. So when he then did succeed, having a coronation that spoke quite directly to earlier predecessors was a very powerful means of confirming the legitimacy of his succession. What about coronation oaths? What did Charles I and Charles II pledge? Were there any variations between them? There's interesting points actually going back to James VI and I about the oath. One of the actually really significant changes that James VI made when he became James I of England was he was very concerned to understand and know as minutely as possible all of the ritual and the service that had traditionally been followed in the English coronation service. But the one major change he made was that it was all going to be in English and no longer in Latin. And that actually wasn't as straightforward as it sounds. This is also somebody, obviously, who a decade later would oversee the James version of the Bible. This is someone who's really interested in language and translation. But translating into English those 14th century prayers with all of the ways in which a monarch becomes sanctified through unction, all of the relationship between church and state, this was all coming out of a Catholic context. So to try and make those both Protestant and in English required a lot of translational finesse. And going more specifically to your point about oaths, so James VI, the first time he's crowned is in Scotland, when he's 13 months old in June 1567. And the whole purpose of his coronation is, again, one of legitimation. His mother has been deposed. That is controversial. It's not even accepted by all of the political nation in Scotland, let alone other countries. So James is rather hurriedly crowned several days after his mother had forcibly been obliged to swear acts of renouncing her throne. And a couple of days before James's coronation, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland meet and they look at the oath and they double its size and they also move its position in the coronation. So it's no longer the fact that the monarch is now crowned and then swears an oath. George Buchanan, who's one of the key sort of Protestants involved in Mary Queen of Scots's deposition, and then is later James's childhood tutor, 
insists that the oath must be sworn. Now, clearly, 13-month-old James isn't going to swear it. The Earl of Morton swears it on his behalf. But nevertheless, he undertakes certain oaths before the crown is placed on his head. And the meaning of that oath really resonates through James's life. So his main works of political theory, he wrote while he was talking of Scotland. He talks a lot about the coronation oath as being the clearest civil, fundamental law by which a king's office is defined. And he clearly regards himself as being under a huge duty to obey the terms of that coronation oath, as well as the one that he then swears when he becomes king of England. But he doesn't see it in the same way that Buchanan and a lot of Presbyterian radical theorists had seen it as a sort of contract, that this is my part, and if I do this, or I fail to do this that I've sworn to, then you have the right to resist me, as some of the sort of contractual theorists might have said of Charles I. James is absolutely clear that he swears by this, but the only person who can judge him on that is God. Who would have been in the audience for a coronation? Was this really about the nobility or can we imagine that this is something that all of the different ranks of society might have been part of? So I think if you take someone like James VI and I, there's a real difference. When he's 13 months old in Scotland, it's often described as being the most poorly attended, cheapest one on offer in single figures, numbers of lords and clerics there. By comparison, his one in London in 1603, although it takes place in the middle of plague and he's rather disappointed that all of the public advice seems to be that people should be leaving the city. It's the first time that admission tickets are given and it seems as though the constituency is quite broad. There's a thawing in Protestant-Catholic relations. The Venetian ambassador talks about admission tickets being available. And there's quite a few eyewitness accounts, both of foreigners, but also of young lawyers. So it seems as though, even though there weren't the crowds that James had hoped for and he has to postpone his entry into London because of the plague, it does seem as though it's possible, if you're of relatively good standing, to be able to gain access. And certainly you can see a contrast between, say, James I's coronation in 1603 and that of his son Charles I, which again happens at the time of plague. And the coincidence of plague and coronation isn't great. It does seem as though God is sending a slightly worrying message. So in February 1626, Charles I really slims down his and doesn't travel through the streets to Westminster Abbey because of the danger of plague. And I think with social distancing and things, we're quite sensitive to some of these sort of precautions that might be put in place. And then there isn't any feast afterwards. And it's seen as a very private affair. It's not really, there is clearly a state audience. But in all of the troubles that Charles I later undergoes, people often retrospectively look back and say it wasn't inclusive. People didn't get to share in that celebration. And Charles II, when he finally comes back to London in 1661, after years in exile, he is determined to have a huge panoply of celebration of pageants and entry into London coinciding with the coronation. He chooses to have the coronation on St George's Day, which isn't a Saints Day calendar at this stage, but is still a sort of public holiday of great sort of popular significance. And that is widely seen as a huge success, that even if people can't get into the Abbey itself, they can line the streets and they can take part in many of the other sort of festivities. You mentioned the banquet or feast and that sense of lining the streets is something we're very familiar with when we see royal pageantry. What kind of events 
otherwise might have occurred during a coronation? Were there other kinds of performances or other festivities? There's evidence that in some sort of provincial areas that people, as they would do today, would recreate their own way of marking it. There's water pageants in 1661 on the Thames, in as much as budgets will allow. We want another problem for Charles I in the 1620s was that the coffers were quite low and it was a lot cheaper sailing a royal barge. But there was a real sense of missing that connection between monarch and their new subjects. And I think that element of the coronation hasn't changed over the centuries. I'd like to talk a little bit about the importance of Charles I and II Scottish heritage, specifically that we've got both monarchs crowned in Scotland as well as in England. Why did they do this? And was it for the same reason? Not at all for the same reason. So Charles I is born in Scotland. He was born in Dunfermline in 1600. And there was nothing that said that one has to have a second coronation and acquiring a new kingdom wasn't unknown in the early modern period. But nevertheless, James, his father, had certainly thought it was absolutely essential to starting his English kingship. So Charles I is in London when his father dies. He has his coronation at Westminster Abbey at Candlemas in February 1626. As I said, there's plague at the time. It's not quite the lavish ceremony. And he also cancels his royal entry. And there's a sort of interesting relationship between the sort of royal entry into London and the coronation, but they are seen as going together. And again, Charles I abandons that. But immediately in Scotland, there is an expectation that he will also have a Scottish coronation. And it's almost as though the sort of Scottish Privy Council and his ministers are in sort of perpetual expectation and not quite sure how long they've got to plan. In the end, Charles doesn't go to Scotland until the summer of 1633 to be crowned. There isn't any requirement to have a second coronation. And actually, as James was aware, there could be difficulties. James the Sixth and First was someone who thought very carefully about the implications of the coronation. For him, it wasn't a contract as such that he entered into with his people, but nevertheless, it was an undertaking. And if one had made certain undertakings in one's oath, as he had done as King of Scotland, was he in any danger of perjuring himself if he were then to swear another solemn oath to another church? Clearly, they were both Protestant churches. This was part of James's rationale for uniting England and Scotland to remove potentially these tensions. I think in Charles I's case, it was an expectation. It was often talked about as the king's homecoming, recognition that he had been born in Scotland. That was the phrase that his father had used when he went back to Scotland in 1617. By the time he gets there, it's quite clear that he has moved the Church of England in a particular direction that moves it very far away from mainstream opinion in Scotland. And really his visit to Scotland is a bit of a shock to his Scottish subjects. There's been controversial legislation about crown lands and all sorts of difficulties of remote kingship in the seven years since he's been on the throne. But when he arrives in Scotland, the ceremony is held at Holyrood. There was a lot of expectation initially it would be at Schoon, which is the traditional place in Scotland where monarchs were crowned, or if it was going to be in Edinburgh, then in the main St Giles Church. There are all sorts of problems about the ecclesiastical architecture. St Giles is often seen as the home of the Protestant Reformation. And by the time Charles gets to Holyrood, the service follows the Anglican rite. He doesn't swear the oath that had been approved by the Scottish Parliament in 1567 that his father had sworn on his behalf. He uses the same oath that he'd used in England. He very ostentatiously kneels a lot. And there had been a real sort of standoff over kneeling at communion in the Scottish church. So... 
the whole theatre, and I think coronations are about theatre and ceremony, really is alarming to Scots Presbyterian consciences that see what looks like and smells like popery. Now, in terms of why Charles II had a Scottish coronation, that was entirely different. Charles II had his coronation on the 1st of January, 1651, nearly two years after his father's execution. And that was because this was the first part of his attempt to try and reclaim his crowns after the civil wars and the ascendancy of the English Commonwealth. So he is crowned in Scotland at Schoon in January 1651, 10 years before he has his English coronation. And they're very different. The Scottish coronation is organised by the Kirk party, hardcore Presbyterians, representatives of the same party that had taken up arms against his father and that had opposed his father's religious reforms. So it is a very stripped down ceremony. There is no anointing with holy oil. Charles II does not have his crown placed on his head by a cleric. It's the leader of the Kirk party, Marcus of Argyle. And the sermon is a real homily on the precarity of a king's position and how he can be resisted at any point. By contrast, everything that Charles II then goes in for in London is much more traditional. It's about anointing with holy oil. It's about the parallels between Christ and Charles wandering in the wilderness during their exile. And it's all the ceremony. The two are quite an interesting contrast. And the interesting thing about the Scottish ceremony, too, is that it is not just a Scottish ceremony in the minds of the Scottish Kirk Party leaders. They crown him, as they say, King of Scotland, but also of England and Ireland and euphemistically France. How important do you think it is that these Scottish ceremonies, which are quite often neglected by historians, are examined alongside the English coronations? I think it's a shame that they've been regarded either as an anomaly or just a sort of curiosity, because I think in very sharp relief, if you look at the six coronations, if you like, of James the sixth and first twice, Charles the first twice and Charles the second twice, if you look at those six as an entirety, they throw into very sharp relief the challenges of multiple monarchy in the early modern period, and especially different complexions of the national churches. You might have thought, just going back to 1567 and James VI being crowned as a 13-month-old, you might have thought that would be the high point of sort of Presbyterian, Protestant, Reformation sort of church discipline. But in a way, the revolutionaries who have just opposed his mother are so keen to try and sort of invest his reign with legitimacy that they retain anointing with holy oil and unction and all the sorts of aspects that might seem dangerously papistical. So I think looking at them as an entirety and also thinking about the monarch in each case undergoing each of those ceremonies and making oaths and then simultaneously trying to adhere to both of those oaths and the ways in which, say, authority crumbled thereafter under Charles I's monarchy, I think you get a much more enriched and informed sense of just the precarity and the inherent contradictions involved in early modern multiple monarchies. Particularly when James the Seventh and Second flees in 1688, the Scots try to argue that he never swore a coronation oath in Scotland, so he was never really king. But that argument is quite quickly shot down, saying, no, we did recognise Charles I for seven years before he was actually crowned. It's simply an affirmation. It's simply confirmation that it doesn't really affect the kingly power. And thereafter, there isn't ever an attempt to replicate that double coronation ceremony. But it's quite interesting in 1953, after the coronation in London in June, Elizabeth II immediately undertook a tour of Scotland. At the end of June, there was a national service in St Giles, and she was presented with the honours of Scotland, the orb and the scepter. She wasn't crowned as such, but nevertheless, there was a sort of an echo of a lot of the ceremony and the recognition that goes with the coronation more generally. 
And it's interesting because we think of the coronation ceremony as being something that's had a fairly similar format for more than a thousand years. But your point to how it could have changed as a result of the Reformation is so vital. And that question of what if here is a really important one. It's amazing that it remained unchanged. It's amazing that it wasn't altered in some way as a result of that huge shift, isn't it? And I think you often hear what really becomes cliches now about continuity and change. And I think one of the reasons perhaps it has endured is because it depends on precisely maintaining that almost fiction between something that is ancient and mystical. Even looking at pictures recently of a carriage is not the most obvious 21st century way of travelling around a capital city, but a carriage that now has air conditioning and so things. So I think trying always to find a usable past, as we talk about in history, invest it with meaning. And I think in a way, really one of the most radical moments was when James VI wanted it all in English, not in Latin. And this wasn't because he was a classical scholar of the highest order. But in 1603, he wanted this to be in the vernacular. And the real difficulties that posed to clerics working at speed to try and capture all of those Protestant nuances in the vernacular in ways that you know, would be acceptable to a very learned theologian and classicist king as well is really interesting. Have there been any coronations in Scotland since Charles II? No, Charles II is the last British monarch to be crowned in Scotland. How interesting. OK, so let's look specifically at Charles I and his ceremony that heralded the status as King of England and Scotland and Ireland in London. He didn't ride into London before his English coronation and he didn't wear purple or red for his coronation and he, instead he wore white. Why was he trying to establish himself differently to his predecessors? Investment's point is really interesting, unless, unless there's a link between James had written directions for Charles about his, I think it's called something like directions for the inauguration of monarchy, because in one of his later writings as King, James had written a meditation on verses from the I think it's 27th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, when he looks at some of the ways that Christ was stripped bare, and he talks a lot about the form and ways in which this is the one point as a monarch when you really are going to humble yourself before God. And James has certainly done that in the sort of choreography of his own coronation. So whether Charles is taking that point of stripping back to purity to another point, certainly the transport is all about public health and not risking more spread of the plague by encouraging great sort of crowds of people, waving at people rather remotely from a barge. The same was ostensible reason for cancelling the entry. It seems a little bit more than that because James also had to cancel his entry, but then he did stage it the following spring once that outbreak of plague had passed. There are other, in retrospect, sort of poignant aspects about Charles's coronation. The sermon was on a text from Revelations, Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. And that later was seen as a portend for everything that later unravelled. Muses. Sing to me a history of Olympus and the deathless gods who govern earth, sea, and sky. That is Zeus's command. It's the Ancients from History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and every month on the podcast, we're taking a deep dive into the Olympian gods. 
none of them are as simple or as single faceted as we've kind of reduced them to in our heads when we think about the gods of the pantheon who do one thing each. With world-leading experts, we'll be telling the dramatic story of who they are. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and sex and passion, and specifically she was considered often to be love itself. The myths and their meanings. Hephaestus was already there, and that he split Zeus's head with an axe in order to liberate Athena from Zeus's head. And how they've influenced the course of history. Imagine ourselves back in the footsteps of people who are trying to explain and understand a world around them. A world which is not fair or just. That gets us into absolute key facet of how to understand the ancient Greek gods, which is that they are not good people. Join us as we explore some of the most fascinating deities history has ever known. Listen and follow on the ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Now, one of the things that's going to be talked about a lot at the coming coronation is the fact that we don't have crown jewels and regalia that predate 1649, apart from a couple of things that did manage to survive, like the coronation spoon, which is from the second half of the 12th century. What effect did the civil war have on the evidence of Charles I's coronation? I'm not sure what impact it had on the evidence but the desire to replicate is very strong. Now, interestingly, in Scotland, they don't have a problem with the honours of Scotland coming into enemy hands. They can't have Charles II's coronation in Edinburgh or even in Stirling. It's just too dangerous. Edinburgh Castle's just being bombarded by Cromwell's troops. So they have it at Schoon. But they had smuggled out the honours of Scotland, the mace and the orb and the crown. And those are used as they have been for centuries. Then they're very unceremoniously wrapped up in seaweed and buried in a church in Kincardenshire for the rest of the decade, really, to save them falling into English hands. But England, as you say, has a much more acute problem because one of the 
priorities of the Republican regime after the regicide was to destroy the crown jewels, to stop them getting into the hands of the Stuarts or any of the Stuart supporters. But this determination, more than desire, of Charles II to replicate them, he's assisted by Robert Viner, Goldsmith, who puts up the money. But it speaks to both those conservative as well as innovative aspects of coronations that we've been talking about. This could have been a chance to start anew. And it's interesting that they were replicated so skillfully that an 18th century guide to the Tower of London talks about visitors being able to see the same crown that every monarch has worn since the days of Edward the Confessor. The Tower of London should have known that was not the same crown. It just looks wonderfully like it. But I think it's part of this skill to both have something that was split new in 1661, but somehow anyone that's looking at it will see in their minds, as we do really with a lot of royal ceremonial and costume that's perhaps not precisely date specific. It's quite hard to look at some sort of royal costume and go, that's a precise date. It's often an amalgam because somehow that does evoke a much more composite mental image of generations of monarchs and ceremonies and legitimation. So the ceremonies of 1661 are with this new made regalia, largely, and may well have been different because it wasn't a time of plague, unlike Charles I's. But do we have any sense otherwise what difference there was between the coronations of the two Charleses? And do you have a sense of what effect the dissolution of the monarchy might have? have had on the nature of Charles II's coronation? In other words, is he trying to do something more or less extravagant than his father's? I think he's trying to do something more extravagant. He does talk about not making the mistakes of his father, so making this a big public celebration. I think more than anyone, he is acutely aware that he will remain on the throne for as long as his subjects want him to be on the throne. The outcome to the civil wars was, or the Republican era, was so unexpected that the same army that put his father basically on trial and orders his execution of the same minority elite that then invite him back. No, I think all of the celebration, the scale, the determination to search out old records, there's lots of evidence. Charles II wasn't someone who adored paperwork, but there's lots of evidence that this really did preoccupy him for the nearly a year from coming back into London and to the coronation to make sure that this would be the most splendid event of his reign. There are moments where you can tell that there's a nervousness, that isn't a massive coronation portrait. The very, very large portrait that we tend to associate where Charles is wearing the crown and under a cloth of state, and it's a very regal portrait, is thought to have been painted much later in the 1670s. So there is a nervousness, I would say, as well about assuming that all of this is now here to stay. But nevertheless, for the vast majority of people who would have interpreted events in a providential light, even the fact that there's a thunderstorm is suddenly seen as a sort of terrible portent. The fact that God has worked in such a mysterious way as to bring this king back from exile after all of these years in the wilderness does set up that coronation sermon and the theme of it very well. And one's also lucky in the restoration that you've got people like Evelyn and Peeps recording it all. And Peeps is absolutely bowled over by it all and says, I don't want to ever go and see another state occasion again. I can't imagine anything more splendid and magnificent and then finally famously goes to bed and wakes up with a massive hangover. And that sort of release is quite easy to imagine why people would buy into this great celebration. You mentioned the portrait. How important would symbolic dress have been 
in re-establishment of the Stuart royal supremacy by Charles II and in also kind of things like ritual, like re-establishing the Order of the Garter? I think Charles is very skilled at recognising the ceremonial theatre and the capacity for that. I've always found him to be quite a Janus-faced monarch in that way, because I think he sees this as an essential sort of part of the visual representation of majesty, underscoring his authority. And yet at the same time, monarchy is almost just like a kind of theatrical role. He's quite happy to lend out those same royal robes to Thomas Betteridge to play on the restoration stage when he wants to be a king on the stage. So... I think it's absolutely essential. I think Charles, you can see that very powerfully in the extent to which he touches for the king's evil, thousands and thousands of scrofula sufferers. And that all has a kind of very theatrical ceremony in which he acts literally as the sort of sanctified physician and in imitation of Christ lays his hand on the sick and they are healed. And that is the same sort of almost discharge of the sort of mission that he's given in the coronation. He go out and be the sanctified physician and heal your people. So all of that ceremonial panoply, I think, is absolutely crucial to Charles. But the sort of genius of Charles is that he also combines it with something like St George's Day. So it becomes just a huge celebration for people and not something as his father's coronation had been suspected to have been of something that really wasn't for everybody that was really only for the elite. It's an idea that is then taken up by his brother, James VII and II, who chooses to be crowned on St George's Day, and also by Queen Anne. So it's clearly a popular notion. And much of the regalia used for Charles II's coronation has survived in some fashion. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. We're looking at items that Charles II used. Yes, and I think that's part of the sort of mystical symbolism in Scotland, the honours of Scotland that are on display in Edinburgh Castle. Those are the honours of Scotland that have been used in every Scottish coronation since they were created. In England, I imagine there may have been small repairs. I imagine there will have been small amendments, but that is part of the sort of composite fabric of tradition. Yes, and otherwise what we're seeing is a crown that sat on Charles II's head that will sit on Charles III's head. It's the most extraordinary thing. And I suppose that takes me to my final, and perhaps in the end, the central question, which is that as we see Charles III crowned, anointed with oil from the ceremonial spoon, used in all coronations since the 17th century and before, how much is this continuity, this ritual that we've been talking about, this usable past, this tradition and legacy, the purpose of a coronation, does it matter if things change? I think things have to change because obviously a coronation could be seen as the most important day or event of a monarch's life. But it's also a good opportunity to take a barometer or take a sort of health check on a nation. And in a lot of the commentary, as we approach this coronation, you can hear people say, obviously, Britain is very different from 70 years ago. And clearly, those organising the coronation and those seeking to celebrate it are trying to find a way of navigating an ancient ceremony in a way that makes sense to very different audiences. But I still think the fact that it happens is really crucial. Otherwise, you end up with this sort of liminal period, really, between a monarch exceeding on the death of their predecessor, and then there being this indeterminate period of time until the coronation. In King Edward VIII's time, as we know, it was part of the sort of pressure of preparing for the coronation that led to the abdication. And in James VI and first time, he was particularly anxious to get on with the English coronation because there were quite a lot of plots that were uncovered in the summer of 1603, mostly instigated by Catholics seeking to secure some degree or some 
some sort of guarantee of Catholic toleration or at worst take out James and put in a successor of their own choosing. And in their defence, when they were rounded up, some of the suspects said he hasn't yet been crowned, hasn't actually been confirmed in him. So I think there's this sort of provisional notion, even though in clear monarchical theory, you know, the king is never dead, long live the king, that the king's power starts at the moment that their predecessor expires. In terms of public perception and in terms of almost affirmation as well as symbolic force. That's why it's really important that it does happen. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking through these important examples that we have seen in history and giving a sense of what the 17th century can tell us about the modern day as well. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen including on spotify it really helps more people find not just the tutors history is full of extraordinary people the tutors being just a handful In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.